Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to class number seven of The Dispossessed, uh, the antepenultimate class, of course, as everybody knows. Um, all right. So uh, uh, welcome. The I've fewer announcements this week than I have, of course. Our fall campaign is now triumphantly concluded, uh, which has been awesome. Um, we uh, at the end of our campaign, we've raised over forty four thousand dollars now. Um, it's been fabulous. You guys have just absolutely outdone yourselves. Uh, in your wonderful support for Signum University this year. Uh, so we're already almost 90% of the way to our, 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 our annual uh, goal uh, for 2016-2017. So that is just a, uh, just a, an, an enormously encouraging outpouring of support. And that's just been, been wonderful. I hope you guys have enjoyed... Uh, um, I, I hope that you guys have enjoyed the uh, the the events that we had. The webathon was a lot of fun uh, on Saturday. I really enjoyed that. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed those sessions. And if you haven't seen them, uh, most of them are available now on YouTube or our podcast streams. Um, so I hope that you've been able to to uh, to take a look at some of the stuff that you missed if you ended up having to miss it. Um, anyway, so uh, so so welcome back now to brief announcements um both of them just related to Mythgard academy stuff uh uh first i would like to announce the shocking upset winner of the election for our next Mythgard academy book we have an official result now as of today and the result is you're never going to guess are you sitting down are you ready to be surprised i hope you're ready to be surprised the winner is the Return of the Shadow by Jared Tolkien. Who saw it coming? Oh my goodness! I know. See, I told you that you should be sitting down, right? I mean, it's it's kind of amazing. But there it is. We, uh, in fact, will be soldiering on with our trek through the history of Middle Earth series, Volume Six, which is, of course, the beginning of the history of the Lord of the Rings. So. Um, one of the things that many people have been asking as we've been doing the others, so, you know, when we started the Shaping of Middle-Earth and we started the Lost Road, um, you know, people keep asking, like, you know, do I, do I have to have seen all the rest of them? You know, is it okay to kind of jump in and, um, uh, and you know, and start here? And my answer has always been yes. Yes, you can jump in and start there. Uh, I will be making references back to earlier stuff, but, you know, not so continually that you can't follow what we're talking about. Um, but of course, with this one, it's particularly easy to jump in. This is uh, this is the first volume of the set in which Christopher Tolkien is really talking about the manuscript history of the Lord of the Rings itself. Um, so absolutely, you can now this, you know, this the, our discussions surely will 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 not be without reference to the earlier stuff that we've been talking about, certainly having just done the really exciting stuff that we did in The Lost Road and thinking about the published Silmarillion or the the, the almost published or the wannabe published Silmarillion of 1937, knowing that that's sort of the framework that Tolkien's coming from in starting, uh, uh, you know, this new book, st starting the new Hobbit. Um, obviously, I'm going to be wanting to think about that and what that implies for where Tolkien is and how the story's proceeding and everything. But anyway, it's The Lord of the Rings, right? So even if you've never read any of the Silmarillion material, um, now's the perfect time to jump in with our History of Middle-Earth series. So I hope you will join me for this. Now... Your next question is going to be exactly when are we going to start 
the return of the shadow. Um, okay. So the, about that, um, so I have officially, uh, taken the step. I've decided this week officially, uh, to take the step that I have been foreboding would be taken over the last couple of weeks. And I'm definitely going to add an extra week to the dispossessed class. I can't possibly, I was just, I was sort of looking at the last few chapters and all the stuff that I wanted to talk about it. I'm just like, no, no, there's absolutely no way. Um, so yeah, so we're going to do after today, we're going to do, uh, so, so one more week fans will get their way. Um, so we're going to have after today, two more classes, of the return of the shadow. So today is what the second of, uh, November, right? November 2nd, that's today. Um, so, uh, so it's going to be the 16th then, um, will be, should be, I am planning that the 16th will be, uh, will be, uh, the last week of the dispossessed class. I don't know. is, is saying that of course this second statement is, uh, is even more shocking than the previous one. I know, uh, my, my announcements are nothing if not predictable tonight, but anyway, there we are. So, uh, so we're going to have our last class on the dispossessed on the 16th. Um, and I think what with American Thanksgiving going on in the middle there, I think, um, I'm going to plan to start the return of the shadow on the first Wednesday of December is kind of what I'm thinking. Um, but, uh, I still have to go through and make up my sketch cause I, I was totally, I was just like completely taken on the hop, uh, by this. Um, and speaking of being taken on the hop, uh, small personal aside, um, uh, of course, uh, 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 at least everybody in America knows that uh, tonight is the major historical Game 7 of the World Series that's going on, Cubs and Indians. I'm very interested in this. Uh, uh, I am recording it. I would appreciate it if anyone happens to know anything that's going on without you make no illusion of any kind to what is going on in the World Series game because I am going to watch it. And I, and I, and I, I, I want to bask in the full drama of that spectacle. So no spoilers, please. Um, okay. All right. Anyway. Um, so I, thank you for that. I appreciate that. I remember this coming up back in 2013, uh, in the fall of 2013, which is right when, when we were beginning, um, the, uh, the, the Mythgard Academy and the, uh, Red Sox were on their world series run that year. And so there were a couple times when there was a, a very tense, uh, uh, baseball playoff game going on during the Mythgard Academy. And I, I, I remember making the same appeal back then. Um, Anyway, anyway, okay, all right. So, um, so let's uh, let's talk about the dispossessed. So we had the really uncomfortable class talking about the really uncomfortable scene uh, last week, um, and uh, this week, as I said, I want to come back to looking at um, his relationship with the revolution, um, and and this is an idea, of course. Which it's easy, at least I find it easy, to kind of almost overlook it. That is, we hear Shevik say things like, the basis of Odonian society is revolution, right? That revolution is the, is the sort of default state of Odonian society. And that kind of a statement I found when I, the first time I read the book... Um, I found that that statement just kind of rolled off me 
Okay. Um, uh, that is to say, I think when I read it the first time, I, I didn't think of it any further as, as sort of really meaning anything other than um, it's founded on revolution, right? Like it began with a rev- it's a revolutionary society in the sense that it began with a revolution, right? The, all the people in it were revolutionaries against their former government, against the Arasti governments. And, um, and so like the ideals of the revolutionaries who began the society are the ideals of the society. You, you see what I mean? You know, like it's, it's, you know, a revol- you know, that, that revolution is at the heart of the society in the same way that, you know, revolution, uh, uh, you know, was at the heart of the, you know, the, the, the American society in the first few decades of, 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 you know, the American constitution, right? I mean, that's, there are ways in which you can, you can make that sentence and you can make that sentence make sense. Um, but reading this book through the second time, I've become quite convinced that it means a great deal more than that. And certainly that when Shevik says that kind of thing, he is, um, he means something a great deal more than merely revolution is where we came from, or that's what our roots are, or that's where we started, um, or that's, you know, we still hold the ideals that the revolutionary people back then held, you know, Odo and the others. Um, I say Odo and the others, though we never really hear of any others, do we? And presumably there were others, as we know that Odo herself did not come to Inaris. Um So obviously there had to have been others, but we don't actually know who they were, do we? Anyway, never mind. Point is... Um, when Shevik says that, you know, that the, the heart of Anaresti society, the heart, of, or rather, I should say, the heart of Odonianism is revolution, I think he means something much more, um, much more profound than that. Um, so I want to be focusing on that a little bit. I mean, this, it's, it's not obviously a huge departure. We've been thinking about his relationship with Arasti society, what this sort of gradual reveal or what we've seen in his shifting relationship with Anaresti society, or to say the same thing in a different way, our own sort of view of Anaresti society changing over time as we see Shevik's own understanding and perspective changing over time. Um, and how those two things, as they're moving through time in parallel, right? We have sort of the midpoint of Shevik's story being his trip to Urus, right? Which is where chapter one begins. And then we jump back to the beginning of his life. So then we, you know, we kind of have been proceeding in parallel like this throughout the story. Um, but anyway, so, you know, as we've been looking at this, we've been looking, you know, and especially I'm, 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 I'm particularly interested as the earlier story, right? As the Anaresti half of the story, every other chapter that's the Anaresti story gets closer and closer to our starting point right um and how how there is a, a legitimate parallel right we see him i mean if you think about it we see Shevik as the sort of naive odonian right at the beginning with this relatively naive not thoroughly naive i mean as a child he's not naive he's fully aware at least he experiences certainly the um sort of the disappointments within Anaresti society where it's clearly not meeting its ideals. We think about his, his, his issues with his mom, right? And the stuff that we see him exposed to right away in that first chapter, in chapter two, um, uh, you know, in the nursery, right? And the, and the, the stuff in his uh, speaking and listening group, right? Or, uh, yeah, speaking and listening, wasn't that it? Anyway, um, so it's not like everything was 
peaches and cream and then it slowly kind of slowly kind of gotten worse. But what we have seen is a coming around of his own um, of his own recognition of it. Right. It's something that's been made aware to us, especially the second or third time that we read it. But he himself, although he experiences that in his youth, is still, of course, we'll remember near the end of chapter two, that first NRSD chapter, the teenage Shevik is in that heated argument with Tyrion, where, of course, it's Shevik who's defending Odonianism and, and, and Anaris and the NRSD society and how everything is, how, uh, you know, where, where, where Tyrion is already beginning to kind of push, right? And thinking, hey, maybe we should open up to the to the Urasti. Maybe we should maybe maybe we should go uh, to Urus and Shevik is totally uh, is totally not open to that. And you know, remember his speech about how we are Anaris and Anaris is us, right? You can't you can't an Anaresti can't leave Anaris and go to Urus any more than you can leave your own self. You can leave your own body and and still be you, right? Anyway, um, and exactly, Neil, at the same time, we saw him being naive about Urus, right? We saw him never being totally like, oh, this place is awesome. I love everything about it. I mean, we, we, from the beginning, there were things that repelled him, right? All the, all the rappers, right? And the, 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 the horror, the horror, the, the horror of the commercial street, right? And all that stuff, you know, and the, um, his, his discomfort, not only with the, the erotic furniture, right? But also with, with his man, right? With his servant, right? Who comes in and, and, uh, and, and the, 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 the riches and the waste and, um, even his sort of increasing awareness that he's being sheltered and guided around and stuff. Um, but yeah, James, exactly. He thought that this is what a world, what a world should be. Exactly. Um, and then we see him, so we see him becoming increasingly disillusioned with Urus, just as, as we see in parallel, him becoming increasingly uh, disillusioned with Anaris, but not in the same ways and not for the same reason, right? So we come to the point we're coming to the point, at least in our discussions now, we're coming to the point where we're finally hitting what really begins to look like revolution, right? His relationship with the, uh, his actual going and joining uh, the, his brothers, right? Joining the other uh, sort of wannabe Odonians, right? The, those, those other people of the, of the unpropertied classes who are seeking to, 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 re- to rebel, right? To revolt against the, uh, the, the, the propertied classes, while at the same time we see things really coming, beginning to come to a head in Anaris as well. Um, so okay, so let's 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 go backwards a little bit uh, to see this. I said before that we would uh, we would talk about this. This is that note that he finds in his pocket. This is really the fir- apart from both a kind of a curiosity on his part. I'd kind of like to see some poor folk, right? And his growing awareness that he's being sheltered from that. Right? Apart from that, there hasn't been... He's been kind of contented to stay at the university and do his work and teach his classes and that kind of thing, right? And then he gets this note in his pocket. He opened it, vaguely apprehensive, and read, If you are an, an anarchist, why do you work with the power system, betraying your world and the Odonian hope? Or are you here to bring us that hope? Suffering from injustice and repression, we look to the sister world. We look to the sister world, the light of freedom in the dark night. Join with us, your brothers. There was no signature, no address. 
It shook Shevik, both morally and intellectually, jolted him, not with surprise, but with a kind of panic. He knew they were here, but where? He had not met one, not seen one. He had not met a poor man yet. He had let a wall be built around him and had never noticed. He had accepted shelter, like a proprietarian. He had been co-opted, just as Chafoilisk had said. But he did not know how to break down the wall, and if he did, where could he go? The panic closed in on him tighter. To whom could he turn? He was surrounded on all sides by the smiles of the rich. Okay. Observations. What do you notice here? Neil, exactly, the return of the wall, right? We get the wall again. Um, now, um, let's start with the wall. Um, similarities and, and differences? Uh, that is to say, this reference to the wall. What does this use of the wall metaphor have in common with the other times we've seen the wall depicted? And what's different here? Exactly. Can you can you can you talk a little bit about where this fits in with all of the wall imagery that we've been tracing throughout the book? I agree, Carita, that surrounded on all sides by the smiles of the rich is a striking uh, phrase. And, you know, Carita, that kind of makes me think makes me think of that wall back around the port of Anaris, right? The original wall, the very first image of, of the wall that we see. You'll remember that the wall when we were first introduced to it, never was imposing, right? It, 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 it was just a line on the road where he crossed through it. And even out, off the road, it's, what, like waist-high kids can climb over it, right? Um, and often sit on it. So the wall itself always, from the beginning, is an idea, right? Not an actual obstacle. So, um, so Karita, to me, that really seems to fit in there, right? Um, the idea of the walls being made up by the smiles of the rich, it's not made up by, you know, machine guns or bayonets, right? It's made up of smiles. Um, something which seems easy to transgress, right? But isn't, is not actually. Um, okay, good, good. What else? Um, Okay, good. Neil uh, says he. uh, Neil's talking about him being sheltered from a selection of outsiders. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's there's the idea that we saw Neil back in the beginning. That idea of quarantine, right? Um, The the wall being again, in a sense, totally permeable, right? Completely theoretical, and yet in a sense also sort of a hermetic seal, right? A quarantine on. Uh, on the planet, or quarantining those within it from the planet, right? Um, and we see he is now perceiving himself as being on the inside of that wall, right? Quarantined from uh, from the poor men, and them, of course, being quarantined from him, though he doesn't really think of it in that sense right now. Um, Michael says it's a prison rather than a barrier, and I agree, Michael, from the very first chapter, um, and then much more emphatically in the second chapter when we get that prison story from his teenage years with uh, with Tyrion and the other boys. Um, the parallel between, you know, the prison and the wall, those have been two of the two of the most dominant metaphors throughout this book, right? We keep coming back to the prison and the wall. And, 
And, and the two of them are very similar, right? One of the things that we get right again, right there in chapter one with his room, right? And the, the, the lock on the door of his room, locking in and locking out is the same act. Um, just as the wall encloses the entire planet or the wall encloses the port of Anaris, um, whichever side you look at is equally valid, but it's still, it's still, it's still the wall, right? It's still an obstacle. And we find that again here, too. And, Michael, it is true. One of the insights that he's sort of having here is acknowledging the wall, right? Thinking about the, allowing himself to sort of notice the wall, right? To, to, to be confronted with the fact that he's being kept away from all the poor people. And to acknowledge, Michael, that in doing so, he's, in, he's allowed himself to be shut up in prison, Right. Remember, that's what he objected to so strongly when the doctor was 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 medically quarantining him right in his room to protect him from infection and to protect the rest of the crew from infection. Um, he remember he freaked out when he found that the door to his room was locked. Um, and in a sense, that's what's happening here. Right. As he's discovering that he has been quarantined and and he is surrounded by a wall and the door is the door is locked. Um Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, Tom Hillman says, isn't the point that physical walls aren't imposing, it's the other walls. Yeah, yeah. Um, even, you know, Tom, I'm reminded of the point much later um, in this chapter, uh, you know, after they're being chased, you know, with like machine guns and helicopters, right, at the end of the, at the end of the rally. And um, they're running away. And... They can't get out of the street because all the doors are locked. And he gets mad, right? And he says, you lock your doors. You will never be free. Right? You will never be free as long as you act like this. And it's, there's an irony to it, right? Because, of course, he's seeking safety. You'd think like a nice locked door between him and the people chasing him with machine guns would be welcome, right? But even in that moment, running for his life... Um, he said, you know, he, he, he's confronted with this, with this fact, like as long as, as long as your mindset is to lock doors, um, you're never going to be free. Cause when you lock the door to lock people out, you're locking yourself in. Right. And Tom, this is, it might seem very tangentially related to the comment that you made, but your point about physical walls aren't imposing, imposing it's the other walls. Again, it's, it's not the, 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 the brick walls, right. Of the, of, of the buildings, are more imposing than the locked doors, but it's the locked doors that matter, right? It's the fact that the doors are locked. It's the choice that the people have made. As you say, it's the, it's the walls that are, that are created by human choice and human perception. Those are the walls that matter. That's why the locking of the door is much, much more important than the mere presence of the wall in the street, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Interesting. That's a that's a really neat observation, Don. Don says, uh, this is not the first wall that's been built around him, and he never seems to notice the walls that are being built, even when he's the one who's building them. Yeah, um, agreed, Don. It's like, again, we saw the model for this back in Chapter 2 with the prison experiment, right? Um, with the prison game? Experiment? I guess it was an experiment, in a sense, right? Um uh but um I'm a little hesitant to call it that because it's it was also there was it was it was play 
as well, right? I mean, they were they were um, they were they were they were they were sort of having fun. But anyway, um, remember that that too, Don was a kind of a delayed reaction in that same way, right? It was all fun and games until Tyrion lied to the overseer, and then he couldn't take it anymore, right? Um, so uh, yeah, oh good. Karita reminds me, of course, work and play are the same words. So why am I, why am I, uh, uh, you know, uh, debating between uh, between game and experiment? It's both. Perfectly fair point. Anyway, good. Um, yeah, Sarah, absolutely. Um, he he is also absolutely being quarantined as a germ that can cause contagion among the poor. But notice that's not what he's thinking about. Here, right? His emphasis is not on that. He's not thinking, ah, I see what these proprietarians are up to, right? The conviction that comes to him is his own complicity in his being shut off from the poor, right? He had let a wall be built around him and had never noticed. He had accepted shelter like a proprietarian. Um, how? Explain that. Let's, 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 Put a little pressure on that for a second. How has he been a proprietarian? How has his time on Urus been proprietarian so far? In what sense is he being pro? I say that because, of course, proprietarian is one of those words. That's why I want I put as much pressure as I did on the word profiteer last time, because those are both words that get thrown around a lot, right? Profiteer, uh, profiteer, proprietarian, and egoize, right, are the three like great epithets on Anaris, right? And in the Anaresti chapters, we keep getting bombarded with those words, and it's really easy, I think, um, at least I find, it's really easy to have them kind of begin to lose their definitions, right, to lose their meaning. They become, they, they begin to sound merely like a term of abuse. He had accepted shelter like a proprietarian. Right, as if that were just a dirty word that he's hurling at himself because he's angry at himself. Right, but I don't think that's actually how the words are being used, and I want to make sure that we think about that we don't just kind of gloss over it in that way. So, so let's think about that a little bit more. In what sense has he been acting like a proprietarian in accepting shelter? Okay, good. Yes, Michael. It's in part. It's uh, it's like the bargaining, right, that he, he self-consciously described what he was doing as bargaining. Michael uh, points out that he's gaining from his colleagues, right? We know he came to Urus in part because he could not do his physics on Anaris, right? He could not do it in isolation. He needed to be w- sort of in solidarity with other physicists who knew what he was doing, right? And there was no one else. There was no community for him. Um, he could not be part. Um, there was no... Uh, there was no syndicate, right? There was no physics syndicate that he could join um, and be a fruitful part of. Just like, you know, we see almost a version of this with Tokfair, right? Tokfair, uh, she needs a fish lab, right? She needs, she, you know, the, in order for her to be able to do what she loves and what she's really good at, there are only a few, that's why she ends up moving away, right? And taking that, that, that posting far off um, because... There's only a, a there's, there's a limited number of, of places where she can really do her work, but um, it's uh, uh, with Shevik, he's even more of a nookie than that, right? He 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 can't just take a posting to a remote lab. Um, there is no lab, right? There is nowhere else. Um, uh, Sabul is kind of it as far as we know, and he's 
for several reasons, not adequate, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so what, so back to what Michael was saying about the bargaining, right? He, so he's getting something, right? Um, and, you know, you could say, well, it's not selfish, right? I mean, he wants to be able to do his work, which is work for the good of others, right? So it's, you know, that's, that's, uh, um, that's organic, right? That, that's a word they would use, uh, the, 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 the NRSD folks. What's the other word they would use to, um, not pr- productive? Would they call it, would they use the adjective productive? There's another adjective that they would use, but I can't, uh, I can't, I can't think of exactly how, I'm blanking now on exactly how they would say it, trying to use the, the, uh, NRSD vocabulary for this. Um, but anyway, it works, right? Um, and yet he feels guilty about it, right? He is benefiting. He is being, he's kind of like being treated um, like he's special, right? On the one hand, he keeps saying, don't call me Dr. Shevik, right? Don't call me, um, you know, don't, I'm just Shevik. And yet he kind of likes being made much of, right? He's enjoyed being shown around and and... I don't, he doesn't enjoy being waited on. He doesn't like, I mean, you're right, Nancy, that he has a servant and that's a big deal. But, you know, that at least he could, he could sort of defend himself, I suspect, even to himself in that he's been kind of trying to, uh, uh, trying to, to, uh, sort of suborn that whole relationship from the beginning, right? And the only reason he's not succeeded any better is he keeps backing off because the servant himself seems uncomfortable with it and he doesn't want to make him uncomfortable. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, Nancy, exactly. It does go very badly until he gets sick. And that that is the thing that uh, uh, finally breaks the ice uh, with his man. Right. Um, and yeah, Don, if he, he has accepted shelter, he's accepted protection. And and so acknowledging that he is property, that does seem to be the really big thing. It's not it's not I think that he is being a propertarian in the sense of claiming ownership over things himself. That doesn't really seem to be a big part of his issue, right? Um, But he has gone along with the entire system, right? He has been co-opted, as it says. Um, So I think it's it's basically that he has failed to revolt against the propertarian system. He hasn't... He has allowed himself to be possessed, right? To be a possession of the university, of the Yadi government, right? So, um, and this, of course, is where we come back again to the title of the book, right? In a sense, of course, dispossessed is the adjective that can be applied to you only after revolution, after successful revolution, right? Only if you revolt, and succeed in breaking away, succeed in breaking through the wall, succeed in breaking out of prison, only then can you be said to be dispossessed, right? Prior to that, you are, you are possessed. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, hey, I know. Let's do slide two. Um, here is where, now I'm, I'm forgetting who was commenting on this before about him being shut away from everybody else. Oh, Sarah Lagarde. Yeah. Sarah, here's where this comes in. This is at the end. This is in when he's drunk and passed out. Right. Um, and, um, 
and the and we finally kind of hear the you know two of the Urasti talking about him behind his back, right? This is Pei and Oye, I think they uh, um, Vea's brother, and Pei, who's the one who's sort of the most overt agent of the Iadi government, right? I don't care what he sees. We don't want him seen. Have you been reading the Birdseed papers or the broadsheets that were circulating last week in Old Town about the Forerunner? The myth, the one who comes before the millennium, a stranger, an outcast, an exile, bearing in empty hands the time to come. They quoted that. The rabble are in one of their damned apocalyptic moods, looking for a figurehead, a catalyst, talking about a general strike. They'll never learn. They need a lesson all the same. Damned rebellious cattle, send them to fight Thu. It's the only good we'll ever get from them. So here again, this is this is the first time in the entire book that we get a private conversation between two Urasti behind Shevik's back. Well, they're not behind his back; they're right next to him, but he's passed out, right? Um, so this is really the first time that we see what they're really thinking, right? Um, uh, yeah, no, n- um, yeah, Michael, they're not sending them to fight that through, right? I know it's, I, 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 I have to admit, reading the Dispossessed interspersed in the midst of the History of Middle-Earth series, I, I, I keep thinking of through the Necromancer when, uh, when they, when that comes up as well, and I keep trying not to think about that. Um, yeah. Sarah Lagarde, you're absolutely right to be thinking of the Kwisatz Haderach here, or really of the of the Mahdi, right? The, 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 the Fremen Messiah, right? It's a lot like the legends that the people on Dune had. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and James, you're right. James using, I think even before I said anything about it, using the language of Dune to say it's a very prescient myth, um, that, that idea of bearing time in empty hands. And James, I agree with you. Um, and as much as I think you are making an explicit reference uh, to Dune uh, through your use of the word prescient there, like Dune, remember, when, uh, for those of you who recall the Dune class, which feels like it was about five years ago, um, we, um, uh, we, we were talking then about how, on the one hand, we, we, we you know, in Dune, we keep being reminded that it's all, it's all a setup, right? These, these, these legends among the Fremen have been, have been planted, right? Been planted by the Bene Gesserit. Um, and it's all, it's all kind of a setup. It's all, it's all orchestrated. And the Fremen are kind of ultimately being manipulated in this sort of multi-generational manipulation. Um, and yet, and yet we see things which suggest it's not just opportunism, right? It's not just planted legends then being seized opportunistically by Jessica and Paul, um, it becomes in, it, 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 it becomes, there becomes a sense of, of really it being a real thing. Right. And anyway, James, I agree that particular line, um, bearing an empty, that phrase really bearing in empty hands, the time to come is not only particularly moving, um, but, but very, very powerful. Right, um, prescient, as you say. If that's really a thing, I mean, if that was really a prediction, and and it seems that it is, right? I mean, that that um, what is it they 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 say about they quoted that, right? So apparently that's written somewhere. Bearing in empty hands, the time to come. 
we know, right, from our perspective, um, from having seen pretty well backstage in Shevik's life, how significant that is, how apropos that is to him, that coming with empty hands. He was saying that innocently um, to the doctor on the spaceship in chapter one, right? I come with empty hands. I, I have nothing. I am the beggar man, right? Um, and, uh, and of course, bearing in his empty hands the time to come. I mean, obviously the association with time, that begins to seem like way more than a coincidence, right? The association of the forerunner with time specifically. Now, bearing in empty hands the time to come, it's not like you can't imagine that being a kind of a generic apocalyptic prediction of hope, right? Um, the empty hands thing is not too hard to guess, right? In a society like this, and it with with such a, st- a strong propertyed class and unpropertyed class, uh, that the one who would be leading the poor would be one with empty hands, right? Okay, sure, it's an obvious guess. And the time to come just kind of refers to hope in the future revolution, right? So, again, it, it's like easy to see how that phrase could be kind of tossed out there, but yet again, it is so perfectly um, relevant. And so powerfully relevant to Shevik that it's hard, I think, not to pause here, right? Um, and and I, I, it's it's it, it's a moment that I find really interesting because what we see here is not only that, um, not only that uh, he is the the sort of the quarantine thing, right? He's been shut away from them, and the, or they're being shut away from him, but he's being shut away from them. That's what they really care about. We don't want him seen, right? Um, but there's, there's sort of more to it. And of course, as Tom points out, uh, in Dune, Paul becomes walled in by all of the expectations on him, uh, until yes, Tom, he ends up feeling like he's in prison, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that's your, uh, that's your, 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 um, your Dune dispossessed, um, uh, crossover for the night. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, exactly. All right, let's, um, let's keep, so, so what happens, right? Um, he, so he has this sort of mythic status among them, right? Um, let's, uh, let's look at what happens here. This is him reflecting, right? This is the morning after, right? He wakes up with a hangover after the horrible events of Vea's party. He saw now... Now, we, we read this passage last time in the context of thinking about him and his assault on Vea and all that stuff, right? I want to come at this passage again, thinking about it, thinking about the, the, the prison and the quarantine and his relationship with the poor. He saw now, in detail, item by item from the beginning, that he had made a mistake in coming to Urus. His first big mistake, and one that was likely to last him the rest of his life. Once he had seen it, once he had rehearsed all the evidences of it that he had suppressed and denied for months, and it took him a long time, sitting there motionless at his desk, until he had arrived at the ludicrous and abominable last scene with Vea, and had lived through that again too, and felt his face go hot until his ears sang, then he was done with it. Even in this post-alcoholic veil of tears, he felt no guilt. That was all done now. And what must be thought about was, what must he do now? Having locked himself in jail, how might he act as a free man? 
Okay, so he acknowledges his own complicity, right? This was his idea. Coming to Urus was his idea, and it was a mistake. In coming to Urus, he has locked himself into prison. Um, so there's this wall around the port of Anaris, right? You've got the whole planet and the wall around the port of Anaris, and he crossed over that wall and into the port, and as a result, surprise, surprise, he's locked in, right? Locked into a small space. It turns out that all of Urus, which was being shut up within that wall, is a prison, right? Um, he had, you know, remember the, the sort of the reversal of things that we saw in chapter one? Remember when he's, um, when he's taking off in the, in, in the spaceship and he looks down and he sees the valley, right? The Grand Valley that he knows, and then it, it reverses and becomes ceases to be con, to look concave, and it becomes convex, right? Um, ceases to be a bowl full of light, and and it and it, and it becomes uh, um, it becomes convex. Um, that kind of reversal is what it sort of seemed like at first, right? It, to cross the wall and enter the, is to leave his society behind and enter voluntarily into prison, like like his classmate voluntarily entered into the prison, right? Except it's not really prison, right? It's freedom, right? He was being locked away. They were trying to keep him out of that space, right? A locked door, locking in and locking out is the same gesture, right? So we, we saw people throwing rocks, sorry, people trying to keep him from going in. But he did it. Right, he opened that door and walked through, and now he recognizes. In doing so, he was locking himself in jail. Right, that he himself had not yet really learned that lesson that he was trying to tell the doctor in chapter one. Right, um, to unlock that door and walk through turned out to be the same thing as to lock that door behind him, um, and to, to and what looked like coming out of prison was also going into prison um yeah yeah so but having locked himself in jail how might he act as a free man right what does it mean to be free confronted with the wall what is he going to do how is he going to act um what must he do now and the thing that interests me here is the coincidence. Um, and I don't mean that in the way that the word is normally used, like as if it were just chance. I'm not saying that. By coincidence, I just mean two things occurring together, right? Um, remember that shame was associated with the prison the first time we met it, the prison. Either, actually, shame or the prison. We were we were introduced to both together, and you'll remember the description of shame, um, uh, which was described in it, if it was described as if he didn't even really recognize the sensation, right? Um, and the shame came when Tyrion lied to the overseer, and that's the moment when sort of his eyes were opened to this horrible game, how horrible was the game that they were playing, right? With the prison. And he was overcome by shame. Now, he's overcome by shame again. He feels shame. Um, not just for the sexual assault on Vea, right? Um, 
And again, as I was saying last time, it's not just like he committed sexual assault and that's bad. In fact, I'm going to stop using that phrase because it's not a, it's not a, it's not part of the vocabulary of this book. We would call it that, but that's not what the book would call it. In the terms of the book, that moment, and we talked about this last week, that moment of 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 his pouncing on Vea, right, was the moment when he most thoroughly, most completely betrays the ideals of Odonianism. Nowhere, at any point, anywhere in his life, is Shevik less Odonian than in that moment. Right, um, in the attitude that he betrays, the the disregard for, uh, you know, the the total lack of solidarity with Vea. Remember, even just earlier in the conversation that same night at the party, her own expressed desire to be free, he found very moving. Right, um, but he uh, he he can't um, he can't handle it. Right, it's. Uh, it's 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 he tur- he betrays it right he turns away from it um because of his own desire because of his own his own lust his own possessiveness in the end um yes exactly mind vea exactly the possession of the object of desire and so it's it's sinking into that nadir um where he becomes a rapist right well a would be rapist anyway um uh, the worst kind of Nuknibi, right? Um, who 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 really should be uh, requesting a posting at the asylum in in Anaris? Um, he feels shame for this, understandably. But notice how it works differently, or is it differently? Why does he object to the prison? Why does he go and let his friend out of prison? Because he feels shame. Not shame at the prison, right? It's his feeling shame about something else that leads him to say, this has to end. I'm going and I'm opening the prison door right away. And we see the same pattern here, right? It's his shame about what happened at the party that makes him realize, I got to open the prison door. Right. Um, that this is what leads to his conclusion, having locked himself in jail. How might he act as a free man? Um, so what happens? He sneaks out. He's helped, of course. Doesn't just sneak. Um, right. He finally establishes solidarity with uh, with his man, whose name I'm forgetting. I feel bad about that. Remind me of the name of his servant, uh, if you would, because I can't I can't remember it. Um, F four, thank you, James. F four. Um. Yeah. So uh, anyway, so with a four's help and solidarity, um, F four's finally accepting him as a brother. Um, and let's actually let's pause there for a second. We already mentioned that it was his illness, right, that seemed to to turn the corner in his relationship with Afor. Um And uh, I'm interested in just kind of thinking about why that is. Like, that, why is it that Afor finally opens up? Um, Afor himself had been affronted before that time, right? Um, he had seemed insulted by 
Shevix attempts to reach out to him. And it seems pretty clear in retrospect. At first, it seems as if possibly F4 is simply complicit with the system, right? That he himself finds it appalling that, you know, this guy doesn't know his place, right? That this ma- this, this, this propertied guy, or at least in the propertied class, doesn't know his place, right? Um, that, that, anyway, that seems like at least a possibility at the beginning. We learn that no, no, if or has no complicity with the property class, really. Um, his sympathies are revolutionary. So why didn't he accept Shevik's overtures at the beginning, right? Why did he refuse them uh, for so long? And the answer seems to be, what? He, afford didn't really believe that Shevik wanted him or needed him. I mean, the most obvious thing that happens with Shevik's illness is the shift in power dynamic, right? When Shevik is obviously weak, right? He is not a master. He is helpless, and he needs Afford's help. Um, and, uh, yeah, he is... Suspicious Veronica. That's how I would read it too. That you know, perhaps Shevik is testing him, and um, you know, so he's, and and that's Veronica. To me, that is the most sensible way to read what seems to be his his offendedness right at the beginning, the offense that he takes. Um, he's like offended that Shevik would try it on with him, right? You think I'm going to fall for that? Right, you think it's so easy to get me to be, to betray myself, right? Um, that seems to me that I agree with you, Veronica. The best way to read that, but anyway, um, so uh, what? Um, yeah, so Yana asks. Uh, it's kind of interesting that the ruling class did put a potential revolutionary servant in place. Did they just not take him in, into account? Yeah, I think they didn't notice. Pay doesn't even doesn't even notice that he's there, right? Doesn't, doesn't look at him, doesn't pay the least attention to him. Um, and of course, all of the servants are potentially, you know, all of the working class are potentially revolutionary, right? Um, you know, that's, that's not something that you can, that they can, you know, they can't ever really assume or believe that one of the unpropertied class is not going to be, um, revolutionary. They just don't really seem to care, right? But, um, um, yeah, yeah. Now, James says that Pei does ask for some chocolate to drink just to get a four to leave the room. Yes, he doesn't want to speak in front of the servant, but again, that's just, has nothing to do with a four personally, right? In fact, he doesn't even look at him, right? He just says, a cup, right? Um, without even turning his head to look at a four. Right. Um, Shevik notices that particularly the extent to which pay does not treat it for like not only not like an equal, but not even really like a human being. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yana says it seems like an obvious weak link uh, in their imprisoning chains. Yeah. No, it does. I agree. But that's very often the case. I mean, usually the um, uh, the working class is larger than the ruling class. Right. Um, and therefore, you know, the the ruling class is always having to utilize the working class in order. To, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's a fairly common dynamic. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's... Um, did I finish talking about that? I didn't really. That is, what flips the switch for a four? Why does he, why does he change? What is it about the illness and his... Because he's the one who opens up. He's the one who opens up first, right? If four is the one who opens up first when he's nursing him. And when Shevik in that context begins a conversation, he's been trying to have a personal conversation with Ifor from the beginning, right? Um, yes, Sarah, it, Shevik does recognize Ifor's skills. It is when he compliments him on being a, being a good nurse, right? Um, that Ifor opens up and begins talking about his family and his family history. I was thinking about showing weakness as well, Yana, that, uh, that, that Shevik is, is showing weakness, um, and vulnerability, but yeah, I, I think it's perhaps a combination of the two that the, that they they're kind of brought to a to a to a sort of a closer footing with each other. But he, of course, seems finally to believe, to be willing to believe, that Shevik really genuinely wants to relate to him as an equal. Um, yeah, I wonder, Yana. Yana says, maybe illness is generally considered part of the lower classes at, in Urus. Are the rich people ever sick? Do they need nursing like this? Is that even a thing? It's not. Maybe not, right? I mean, he would be more vulnerable than they would because, you know, he's from off-world, right? So we know from chapter one his immune system is... I mean, they've tried to prepare him and stuff, but it's not shocking that he would get sick where others wouldn't. I wonder. I wonder, Yana. Um, it certainly doesn't seem to be part of his normal, Ephor's normal service to his masters, right? Um, hmm, yeah. Anyway, let's look at Shevik among the revolutionaries. Do you know what your society has meant here to us these last 150 years? Do you know that when people here want to wish each other luck, they say, may you get reborn on Anaris? To know that it exists, to know that there is a society without government, without police, without economic exploitation, that they can never say again that it's just a mirage, an idealist's dream. I wonder if you fully understand why they've kept you so well hidden out there at Ayu Eun, Dr. Shevik. Why you, were never, why you never were allowed to appear at any meeting open to the public. Why they'll be after you like dogs after a rabbit the moment they find you're gone. It's not just because they want this idea of yours, but because you are an idea, a dangerous one. The idea of anarchism made flesh, walking amongst us. Then you've got your Odo, the girl said in her quiet, urgent voice. She had re-entered as Maida was speaking. After all, Odo was only an idea. Dr. Shevik is the proof. We've seen that building, right? We have seen the parallel between Shevik and Odo. That was made really clear in that moment when he sits next to Odo on the bench, right? Uh, remember, and in that same session, we were talking about how, um, um, you know, like Odo, he, he, he's, he's, like Odo, he's taking a step out, right? But he's taking, he's taking that next step, and the next step is the step back, right? Remember all that? Um, so 
the idea of Shevik as being parallel to Odo is well established, but that last relationship is particularly fascinating, right? Um, Odo was only an idea. Dr. Shevik is the proof. Um, and this is really interesting in a couple different ways, right? Exactly. Veronica, Odo never made it to Anaris, right? Shevik himself acknowledges Odo was an idea, right? Odo was not Anaris. Odo was never on Anaris. That's the realization that he comes to, that sort of the thing that he's forced to acknowledge and think through the implications of when he sees that statue of Odo. And remember the place where it is, right? The location of the statue of Odo in, uh, um, in Abenai is particularly significant, right? It's in that lush patch of grass, that, that one little patch of off-world growth, um, that one little piece of Urus, at least of Urasti, you know, vegetable life there, right? Not animals, but grass and stuff, um, which, to which he kind of objected, right? It seemed excremental to him. Um, but seeing Odo and the statue of Odo in that context reminded him, no, Odo wasn't a rusty, right? That Odo, this, this Urasti context is fit for Odo because that's where she belongs. She never saw Anaris. She is not an Urasti at all. Um, but hers was the idea, right? She was the idea. Um, and... If she was the idea, he was the proof. Now, the idea of proof, of course, is that's a particularly significant word in the context of talking about Shevik, right? Because, of course, proofs, that is mathematical and theoretical, you know, uh, physics proofs are what he's dealing in, right? He's been trying to prove the general temporal theory. He himself is the proof of Odonianism, right? Not just the theory, <clears throat> but the proof, the reality, as Yana says. Absolutely. Um, so he. So is this the answer to his question from before, right? Where was it? No, here. Um, having locked himself in jail, how might he ask? He act as a free man. Is this the answer to that? Right? By being their Odo? Right? By being the the idea? Right? By being anarchism made flesh and walking amongst them? Notice their religious language. Right? Their, uh, their Urasti. I mean, that's, if you don't recognize it, that's a near quotation of the New Testament. Um, John chapter 1, talking about the incarnation of Jesus, um, and the word became flesh and dwelt among them. Um, it's, a, it's a very obvious uh, um, patterning of those sentences after that very famous passage in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. So, but again, that, that kind of religious context uh, for this... Um, uh, for this moment is, of course, it's not surprising. Of course, this is an Arasti speaking, and we're told in theory, though I've, I've talked about this before, um, we're told that in theory, religion is a major big deal in Oris, though we don't really see that, all that much evidence of it. Um, here's one, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah, good. And Yana, I agree, especially when you consider it 
uh, in the context of the the sort of the prophetic, messianic, apocalyptic talk, right? Um, that uh, that 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 Pei and Oye were discussing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so again, is this the answer? How can he walk out of the prison that he's locked himself in? Um, it's time for him to rebel. It's time for him to try to break through the wall. It's time for him to join with his brothers and in finding, ceasing to be a nuknib, right? I'm not, uh, he, he, he's, he saw himself. Remember, he characterized himself as a nuknib in his conversation at Oye's house. And although Oye's kids were awesome and their otter was adorable, Oye's family, um, although it was in a sense like one of the most sort of positive and constructive elements of Arasti society he was ever connected with, especially his relationship with the children, um, nevertheless, we can see in retrospect, it was not in fact healthy, right? He was still being manipulated. It was still prison, right? Oye is in league with the government. Vea is in league with the government. That's his being introduced to Vea there and walking her to the train station at the end was probably not an accident, right? Um, so even then, he was in prison. But anyway, at that time, remember, that's when he was characterizing himself as a nuknib, right? One who had refused work postings, one who had separated himself out of, had lived, chosen to live out of solidarity with the rest of society, right? That's how he characterized his coming to Urus, right? Um, but now he can he can walk out of that prison by reversing that. No longer is he going to be a nuknib. Now he is going to embrace solidarity and to embrace not only embrace solidarity and with it revolution, right? Because that's what solidarity should always be. Um yeah, yeah. Um Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, exactly. And Arthur, we had talked about. I think you might, you must not have been here for that class. We actually talked about the similarity between uh, nuknib and and the 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 Yiddish word nudnik. We actually discussed that, um, which is interesting, right? Because that word means means like a, a pester, a bore, as Noam said, a troll, right? Uh, in the internet troll sense. Um, in other words, somebody who is aggravating, right? Somebody who is who is. Uh, uh, and the idea certainly of a nuknib is somebody who is distancing himself, who's pushing away other people, um, who repulses other people and other people is, are repulsed and, and who repulses others. Right. Um, so we see him in, in, in taking on this role, right. In being anarchism made flesh in being the new Odo, he is reversing that. Right, he's embracing solidarity. He is no longer just being a nuknib. He is ceasing to refuse his posting. Right? Okay. So how does that go? This is the demonstration. It was good to be outside after the rooms with locked doors, the hiding places. As always, please do feel free. Please make observations as we go. Like can be small observations. Any phrase or word or concept that jumps out at you as we go. Make the observations first and we'll sort it all out later. It was good to be outside, after the rooms with locked doors, the hiding places. It was good to be walking, swinging his arms, breathing the clear air of a spring morning. 
to be among so many people, so immense a crowd, thousands marching together, filling all the side streets as well as the broad thoroughfare down which they marched, was frightening, but it was exhilarating, too. When they sang, both the exhilaration and the fear became a blind exultation, his eyes filled with tears. It was deep in the deep streets, softened by open air and distances, indistinct, overwhelming, that lifting up of thousands of voices in one song. The singing of the front of the march, far away up the street, and of the endless crowds coming on behind, was put out of phase by the distance the sound must travel, so that the melody seemed always to be lagging and catching up with itself like a cannon, and all the, the parts of the song were being sung at one time, in the same moment, though each singer sang, though each singer sang the tune as a line from beginning to end. He did not know their songs, and only listened and was borne along on the music, until from up front there came sweeping back, wave by wave, down the great slow-moving river of people, a tune he knew. He lifted his head and sang it with them, in his own language as he had learned it, the hymn of the insurrection. It had been sung in these streets, in this same street, two hundred years ago, by these people, his people. O eastern light awaken, those who have slept. The darkness will be broken, the promise kept. All right, observations. Yes, Nancy, I love that. Notice the sequencing and simultaneity, right? Every person is singing the song in a sequencing manner, right? Each line all the way through the song from the beginning to the end, right? But the length of the line of people and the distances that are being crossed make, although everyone is singing the song sequentially, the whole song sort of resonates in simultaneity, right? Um, I wouldn't call it a proof, but I'd call it an illustration, Sarah, um, of Shevik's, uh, uh But remember, it's not just simultaneity, right? It's what he keeps insisting on. He's not debunking sequence here. Remember, that was Sabol's thought. Right, Sabol was a, was was opposed in large part opposed to Shevik's work on simultaneity because he Sabol felt it to be in competition with sequency theory. Right, remember how his you know his um, uh, Sabol's dictatorial statements about how uh, uh, sequency theory right is the is the you know the the I forget the phrase but is the um, you know the 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 main line of of physics inquiry. Um, you know he was he was trying to brush off what he see what he saw as a challenge to his domain, but that was never Shevik's idea, right? It wasn't simultaneity as an alternative to sequencing. Um, the point is to have them simultaneously, um, and this is what we see. Right. There's this like meta simultaneity or rather the whole point of simultaneity uh, theory is that both things happen at once. Things are both simultaneously existing and sequential. Both can be true. Right. As he says to uh, uh, to his daughter, you can be both four and four and a half at the same time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. OK. Um What do you make of the song? The hymn of the insurrection? 
Let's do some analysis. It's a very short poem, right? O eastern light awaken, those who have slept. The darkness will be broken, the promise kept. Good. Carita agreed. Eastern light, so dawn, right? I think it's dawn. Probably it's dawn, right? The fact that we're talking about awakening, I mean, that is, we can take this for granted because, I mean, this is a different planet with a different sun, right? So does the sun rise in the east here on this planet? I'm going to say yes, right? Uh, because it's, uh, it's, it's the imagery there of awakening the sleepers certainly suggests dawn. So, okay, so let's go with dawn. Okay, so we've got the light of dawn is coming in and awakening the, the sleepers, right? Um, in what sense? More. What, is that, what does that mean? What's the significance of that? Good. Karita asks, slept in the sense of being unable uh, to act or a mind asleep. Yeah, Karita, that, that, that's kind of what I'm thinking, too. It's interesting, right, that the emphasis is not on... Um, the emphasis in that first line isn't, oh, Eastern light, awaken and drive away the darkness, right? What, what it does is it awakens those who have slept. The first effect that the Eastern light has when the Eastern light dawns is to arouse those who have been, who have been sleeping, right? Um, okay, okay, so, so this is a call to, uh, a call for solidarity, right? A challenge, really, to solidarity. Um, an appeal to the light to wake up those who have been sleeping, then the darkness will be broken, the promise kept. Now, it's interesting, um, Veronica, think of, uh, Veronica's thinking of the passage before when they're talking about what Anaris has meant to them, right? Um, and it is tempting to see Anaris in general, Shevik in particular as the Eastern Light, right? Like, as if he were the one who is being sung to in this hymn. Um, and there's a sense, of course, in which that works, right? When he his coming is like a messianic arrival, right? Um, it is like the dawn of, 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 of the sun, which awakens the sleepers, right? And the general strike comes, and the, the, you know, the demonstration that they've been wanting uh, to say, you know, it's it's and good exactly, James. They did say that that Anaris is the light, right? That was that was a uh, that was imagery that they used. Um, that works, right? It seems to be perfectly descriptive, and yet this is not their song. This is not a new song, right? This is an old song. This is the song that was sung in Odo's time. Um, Shevik grew up with this song, the hymn of the insurrection. It's a historical song. So obviously, in that sense, or at least to the original writers of this song, Anaris could not have been the Eastern Light, right? Um, which is kind of... So, so we can have a kind of... We can see a sort of a double sense of that here. Um, and yeah, but Rachel and James are both thinking in terms of, in terms of, of, of enlightenment. Yeah, Generally, I mean, that, yeah, again, that idea of 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 awakening the sleeping mind, right, and 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 that mind becoming enlightened to 
what? To the need for revolution, right? The need for solidarity. Um, good now. Promise. The darkness will be broken. The promise kept. Um, notice tenses. Tenses are important here, right? O Eastern Light, awaken those who have slept. Tell me about the verb. What's the verb in that first sentence? And describe it. Tense mood voice. What is the verb and what is its tense mood and voice? It's grammar quiz time. <laughs> this question is met with stoical silence. Okay, good. You got it. Got it. Excellent. Um, awaken. Yes, awaken is the verb. And it is... You got it, Don. Absolutely. And Julie. Excellent. It is imperative. It is the imperative voice. Right? No. Imperative mood. Active and passive is voice. Um, it's, a, it's active voice. Imperative mood. Present tense. Awaken. Right? Do this now. Right? Is the kind of verb it is. Right? That's present imperative. Do this now. Right? Um... So, O Eastern Light, awaken those who have slept. Whom are they awaking? Those who have slept. So we have a clause of the, the verb tense is interesting here too, right? Have slept. Those who have slept. Um, have slept is present perfect, right? Which is cool. Those who have slept. So present perfect means an action which is completed at the present time. Right? Um, so the have means it's perfect, right? Um, but it's present perfect, the tense of have, right? So those who had slept means people who woke up a while ago, right? The action of sleeping was complete at a point in the past. Those who will have slept means it's an action that will be complete at a time in the future, right? But it's present perfect. Those who have slept, they've been asleep, but their sleeping is done right now. Because you're going to awaken, O Eastern Light. Right? O Eastern Light, that's what is being addressed. It's the one who's supposed to be doing the awakening. Right? Um, the one to whom the command is being given. The imperative uh, 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 um, verb is being directed. Right? But now, second sentence. Good. Exactly. Sarah and James were already typing it. Future tense. The darkness will be broken. The promise kept. Both of those are future tense, right? The, the second line is elliptical, right? The darkness will be broken, the promise kept. The parallelism suggests elliptically the promise will be kept, right? So we have an acknowledgement of the past. Those who have slept, right, in the past, people have been sleeping, but that's done now. And now the action is going to have, the action needs to happen. Awaken Eastern Light. And when that does happen, right, that's the point at which the sleeping will be done, and from the present point forward in the future, two things are going to happen in the future. The darkness will be broken. The promise will be kept. Good. Um, excellent. Oh, bonus, Noam. Very, very good. 
the darkness will be broken, the promise kept. Um, as Noam points out, that's passive voice, right? It's future, right? Future tense. But it's passive voice. Who will break the darkness? Who will keep the promise? Right? Um, active. The only the difference. The only difference between active and pass, passive voice. Right? Is is the doer of the action the grammatical subject of the verb? Right. So in in the simple sentence, the darkness will be broken. Right. Subject of that sentence is darkness. The verb is. Broken, right? Will be broken is the verb. Darkness is the subject. So darkness is the grammatical subject of the verb. Is it the doer of the action? No, it's the object of the action, right? It's the thing that will be broken, right? The darkness is the thing that's going to get broken. Um, so it's the object of the action, but it's the subject of the verb. That's what passive voice is. Passive voice is when you switch it around and you make the object of the action the subject of the verb, Right? Active voice is... This is why, you know, your, like, middle school and high school English teachers always told you not to use the the passive voice because it's really easy, especially when you're an, a starting writer, when you start switching things around like that to get yourself all twisted and turned around, right? Um, uh, because you're kind of doing it backwards, right? You're making... But I, I always hated that as a rule... I mean, it's dumb. The passive voice is really effective, as, for instance, in this poem. Um, there may be many occasions on which you want to emphasize, because, of course, that's what the passive voice does, right? It places the emphasis not on the doer, but on the object, right? And now, of course, there are other reasons why that's sometimes bad. Like, for instance, the way that politicians do this all the time, right? Like the classic, mistakes were made, right? It's the passive voice, right? What is the effect of using the passive voice? Of course, mistake is the subject of that sentence, but it's the object of the action. It's the thing that was made. Who made the mistake? The person speaking made the mistake, but they don't want to emphasize that, right? So they use the passive voice in order to just conceal the subject and kind of try to soft-pedal that as much as possible, right? That is the cowardly use of the passive voice. And truly, if that's what you're doing... um, uh, in your writing, when you use the passive voice, if you're just kind of concealing the subject of actions, that's usually not very good. And Rachel, you're right. Kids do this very well. They do pick that up very quickly. I, I also have uh, have 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 heard that. I mean, it, surely, right? Parents have heard this. Like, the toy got broken, right? <laughs> yeah. It just <laughs> just there it is. That toy sure got broken. The uh, that action was sure performed by some mystery subject whom shall not be named. But well, but let's really keep the let's really keep the grammatical emphasis on the object of the action, right? Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, yeah. Sidebar. This is why, though, I I I one of my pet peeves as a writing teacher is the fact that students get taught these directly contradictory things. On the one hand, they're told, don't use the passive voice, don't hide the subject, and they're at the same time told, don't use the first person when you write, right? And that's what most, like 90% of the time, that students use the passive voice in their essays. They're doing it in order to conceal themselves, right? So instead of saying something clear, direct, and honest, like, I think this, Right. Or like, um, 
I noticed this in this passage. That's what they want to say because that's what's actually going on, right? But there, but there's a rule. You can't use the first person, right? So you, so instead they say things like, "It can be seen that this occurs," right? Because they're trying to be follow the rule and not use the first person, and then they break the other rule and use the passive voice. Uh, drives me absolutely bananas. The the uh, the the. The forbidding of using the first person is, in my opinion, one of the dumbest rules that gets taught to uh, to people. Honestly, fess up. It's you doing the thinking. Admit that you're doing the thinking. Uh, it's true you don't want to be writing autobiography, right? Um, but there's a difference between writing autobiography and actually speaking clearly. Whatever. Anyway, okay. Back to Noam's excellent observation about the use of the passive voice in the second two lines of this poem, Right? The darkness will be broken, the promise kept. Now, on the one hand, the use of the passive voice merely places the very strong emphasis on the object, of the, which is appropriate, right? We're less interested in who does the breaking and who does the keeping than we are in the darkness, which is going to get broken, and the promise, which is going to get kept, right? So that's fine, right? That's a good thing. But it's also a little bit... It's interesting conspicuous, right? Maybe conspicuous in a good way, right? Because if we are all brothers, right? If we are all in solidarity, the darkness is going to be broken by anybody. It's going to happen, right? The promise is going to be kept by, like, it's like you can point to the person who's keeping the promise, right? We as a collective, will break the darkness and keep the promise. So you could say there's like a, you know, an Odonian principled reason for the suppression of the subject of the action for both of those lines. But what's the danger, right? The danger is, on the one hand, you can say there is no, like no one person is breaking the darkness. No one person is keeping the promise. But of course, neither of those things is going to happen if there aren't many individuals doing those things, right? The, there, there, you, you do have to actually be a revolutionary, right? In order for this to happen, you do have to make the choice to break the darkness and to keep the promise. Um, so we, I think we can see some tension there, and that tension seems to me to be very similar to the kind of tension that we see in Anaris, Right? Um, with the way that NRSD society and the Odonian principles kind of interact together, or don't interact together. All right, let's keep going. I'm on a roll. This is from Shevik's speech, his great speech in the square. It is our suffering that brings us together. It is not love. Love does not obey the mind and turns to hate when forced. The bond that binds us is beyond choice. We are brothers. We are brothers in what we share, in pain, which each of us must suffer alone, in hunger, in poverty, in hope. We know our brotherhood. We know it because we have had to learn it. We know that there is no help for us but from one another, that no hand will save us if we do not reach out our hand. And the hand that you reach out is empty, as mine is. You have nothing. You possess nothing. You own nothing. You are free. All you have is what you are and what you give. 
pretty good lines here, right? Um, and yes, Sarah, I do think the promise is only kept in solidarity. Again, that's it's uh, it's part of the paradox, I think, of the passive voice in those lines, right? I would even go so far as to to to, to identify it as paradox, right? The promise will only be kept if it is kept by all and not by a particular subject, and yet it will only be kept by all if each individual subject also keeps it. Um, okay, so when you come with empty hands, when you possess nothing, when you own nothing, you are free, right? If you have things and possess them, if you own things and lay claim to things and lock the door to protect your things, you are in prison, right? Because locking in is the same thing as locking out. When you have nothing, you are free. All you have is what you are and what you give. Um, Michael, that's very well remembered. Michael is recalling Shevik has been dwelling on his isolation. Right? Remember we were looking at that before on Shevik's isolation? Um, his loneliness? His sense of being cut off. Remember in Inaris, he was contemplating suicide when he was living alone and um, being alone and feeling cut off from everything, right? The first time he felt like a nooknib, right? And of course, again, on Urus, when he feels that he can't work, right? That he's cut off, that he is doing nothing. Um so, Michael, I do think that we can see this in some ways as sort of a step forward, right? As a, as an adjustment, um, empathy, as uh, Michael says, is what is what build what builds bridges. This commitment to solidarity, right? We are brothers. Look how he talks about the brotherhood, right? Um, it is our suffering that brings us together. It is not love. Notice how this matches the exciting grammar and syntax uh, discussion we were just having about active and passive voice, right? Suffering is the ultimate passive thing, right? Um, suffering means to allow to, for something to be done to you, right? Um, uh uh, this is this. this again, it's it's the origin of the word, right? This is why, um, I, like, think for instance, uh, the King James translation of the New Testament. When the children are wanting to come, like people are trying to bring their kids up to get blessed by Jesus, and the the disciples stop the children from coming because they're like, we don't want kids to pester the Lord, right? And and Jesus says in the, in the King James translation, "Suffer the little children to come to me," right? Which means permit them, let it happen, right? Don't do anything, be passive, and permit the, permit the thing to occur, right? Is what the word suffering means. Before it means pain, right? The use of it, of suffering as, as pain, is in a sense an extension, like, a, like a, a, an application of that, right? You are suffering, like in the modern sense, right? In this sense. In the pain sense, you are suffering when something undesirable is being done to you, right? If you could do something about it, you would, right? It's happening to you, and you're helpless. 
to prevent it happening. So when you're in pain, you're suffering, right? You're, 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 you're permitting it. You're letting it happen, right? I mean, you can't, you can't help it, right? You are being marginalized. You are being made the object, um, emphatically the object of an action, not the subject of an action, right? Love is the other way around, right? Love is active. When you love, you do things, right? Love is an is a, is is a thing that you do for and to others, an attitude that you have that you adopt, right? And notice, of course, he points out that it turns to hate when forced. You know, hatred is another active thing, aggressive thing towards someone else. Love is as well, right? The two of them are similar. Love and hate are more similar than either one is to suffering, right? Both of them are, in a sense, opposite to suffering. Um, It is not love. Love does not obey the mind and turns to hate when forced. Um, It is our suffering that brings us together. So he says the point is not love one another, right? He's not saying love each other as brothers, what he's saying, what brings us together, what creates solidarity, what makes us brothers, is our suffering. The things that are done to us. Right? That's why they're revolutionaries. Right? Because they've been possessed. Um, and notice he emphasized the bond that binds us is beyond choice. We're not choosing, we're not loving each other, we're not choosing each other, we're not being active. Right? We have been put we have been marginalized. We have been put into this position. We are suffering. It's not our choice, by definition, right? We are brothers. We are brothers in what we share. Um, what they share is not a positive thing. It's a negative thing. It's not an active thing. It's not an action. It's an object, right? It's not, it's not active. It's passive. What they share is pain. In pain, which each of us must suffer alone, in hunger, in poverty, in hope, we know our brotherhood. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Rachel says, would Odo's ideals have been as effective in a less hostile environment uh, uh, than in Norris? Would, they, would there have been enough universal suffering? These people want a revolution in order to alleviate suffering. Doesn't that defeat the purpose? Yeah, Rachel, it's a very interesting question, right? I mean, it's very clear. Shevik is ex- being explicit here about the fact that the brotherhood, the solidarity, which is the cornerstone of Odonianism, Right. Uh, which is the heart of the revolution, it comes from, it's not something they choose, right? It comes from the position they have been put in, from the, 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 you know, the, the, the object they have been made, right? In, in their, in the, in the grammar of their society, right? They have been made objects. Um, so what do they want, right? Um, this is the paradox of revolution, right? We are powerless. We are helpless. We will join together and we will overthrow those who have power over us. And then when that happens, they become the powerful ones, right? And they become the possessors, right? 
and we get a French Revolution situation, right? Um, and they have to get overthrown again, and the people who invented the guillotine get guillotined, right? Um, uh, you know, the people who sacked, the people who have just been sacked, have been sacked, right? To make a very obscure <laughs> reference to the opening credits of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. But anyway, I mean, that's 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 the way revolutions so often work. Rachel, as you say, it does seem that what has enabled Odonianism to survive the whole, you know, experiment to succeed on Inaris has been the fact that it's, it is, a, in a sense, it is a continual revolution. Their suffering is still continually bringing them together, right? In hunger, in poverty, in hope. We know our brotherhood. Remember, this is the Shevik who has survived the famine on Inaris, which we... It's not until the chapter after this that we learn about that, right? That we learn about what he suffered, that he was in one of the worst hit places in all of Inaris during the famine, where people were just dropping dead of hunger on the job, right? And, that, and, and we learn that he was one of the people who had to make the list of, you know, who gets rations and who doesn't, right? He, that's why he left eventually, because he wouldn't do that, right? But um, anyway, so when he talks about hunger, he knows what he's talking about. When he talks about poverty, he knows what he's talking about. So, Rachel, yeah, what what would happen here, right? Um, what if they succeeded, right? What if their strike succeeded? What do they What do they want? What are they going to try to get? Could they make an Orastiodonian society? Um, it's It's not clear, right? Um, it is not at all obvious that that's really possible, that that's really plausible? Uh, it's a great question. Um, okay. It's having empty hands, having nothing, right? If your hands are full of stuff, you can't, you can't join hands with your, with your brothers, right? Because you're, you're always clutching your things, right? Um, but if your hand is open, then you can reach out to others, Solidarity comes from not solidarity among those who are possessed. The revolution that enables the possessed to become the dispossessed has to start with ceasing themselves to have or to seek to have, right? To open the hand, to stop locking the doors. This is why Shevik is mad, even when, is angry, that is to say, even when. Uh, He's on the run, you know, from the black coats, and but he's still angry when he sees the revolutionaries hiding behind locked doors, right? It's you, you, you've got to you've got to have an open hand, or it's or it's not going to work. Remember this, this is from chapter two. Um, this is at the party before he left the institute. This is young Shevik talking about pain. It exists, Shevik said, spreading out his hands. It's real. I can call it a misunderstanding, but I can't pretend that it doesn't exist or will ever cease to exist. Suffering is the condition on which we live, and when it comes, you know it. You know it is the truth. Of course it's right to cure diseases, to prevent hunger and injustice, as the social organism does. But no society can change the nature of existence. We can't prevent suffering. This pain and that pain, yes, but not pain... A society can only relieve social suffering, unnecessary suffering. The rest remains. The root, the reality, 
all of us here are going to know grief. If we live 50 years, we'll have known pain for 50 years, and in the end we'll die. That's the condition we're born on. I'm afraid of life. There are times I... I am very frightened. Any happiness seems trivial. And yet I wonder if it isn't all a misunderstanding, this grasping after happiness, this fear of pain. If instead of fearing it and running from it, one could get through it, go beyond it. There is something beyond it. It's the self that suffers, and there's a place where the self ceases. I don't know how to say it, but I believe that the reality, the truth that I recognize in suffering, as I don't in comfort and happiness, that the reality of pain is not pain, if you can get through it, if you can endure it all the way. In retrospect, what do you make of this? Thoughts about this? Remember when we looked back on things that he said before, what we saw was a reversal, right? We saw the irony. We had the ironic juxtaposition of chapter one, in which Shevik departs to go to Urus, right? And chapter two, in which Shevik argues passionately that no one from Inaris would ever go to Urus or should ever go to Urus, right? So we saw that, that irony at the beginning, that ironic reversal. I don't think we do see an ironic reversal here in this passage, right? Between what he says about pain at the demonstration, right? In the square, um, uh, in Neo, and what he said about pain here as a teenager on Anaris. There's a difference. There's a gap, but it's not paradox. It's not just reversal. What is it? What do we see? What do you guys notice? In part, Rachel, this bears on the question that you were asking. Um, People want a revolution in order to alleviate suffering, you said, Rachel. Yes, but then with the elimination of suffering, then remove the revolution. The revolution would be over, right? Um, Shevik's statement shows us that on an, it's not really possible, right? Um Noam asks, is the suffering private or social? Well, it seems to be both, right? Um, yeah, Rachel, he does say that there is suffering, personal suffering in, uh, uh, in everyday living, right? Um, he says, if we live 50 years, we'll have known pain for 50 years. It's not about like, you know, so yes, we should alleviate social, we should remove social suffering. Unnecessary suffering, he says. So there can be... Does that mean then there's, um, there is some suffering that is excremental, to use the NRSD imagery, 
right? Um, just as, you know, you might not be a proprietarian, you might not own anything, but that doesn't mean you don't have anything, right? I mean, Shevik is a good Odonian, but he still has a suitcase with stuff in it, right? Um, everybody has a suitcase. Everybody has the same suitcase, right? Imagine the nightmare of anaresti baggage claims. But anyway, everybody has a suitcase on an, on Anaris, right? Um, so it's not that your hands must always literally be empty, that you have nothing at all. The principle of Odonianism, of Odonianism talks about, first of all, possessiveness, right? Ownership, that use of the possessive pronoun. And... Um, uh, and excess, right? Having more than you need. It's that, that, that second dessert, right? Remember? Um, so, okay, so I guess you can have excremental suffering, right? More suffering than you really need. Uh, and, um, but some suffering can't be done away with, right? A society can remove social suffering, unnecessary suffering, the rest remains. Um, if we live, we're going to know grief. And then we'll die. That's the condition we're born on. Particularly interested in the preposition there. Yes, you're right, Tom. The baggage claim is totally proprietarian. Right? I guess a good Odonian would just take the first bag that came to him, right? And and, 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 and walk off, right? Uh <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it's true. It is proprietarian, right? Mind luggage. Anyway, sorry. Uh, what I was saying is the preposition. That's the condition we're born on. It's not the condition we're born in, right? Like, that's how I read it at first. Um, I stumbled over that sentence a couple times. That's the condition we're born on. So, So it's not... The condition we're born in, in the sense of like, uh, like this is the medical condition we're born with, or something like that, right? It's not that. It's the condition on which we're born. So, like, you can be born, but on a condition, right? The condition on which you're, you can, be, like, you will, you, you'll be given the right to be born on condition that you experience pain and no grief and then die, right? He sees life as conditional on that basis, right? Um, and he says he's, he's very frightened. He talks about the grasping after happiness. Everybody wants to be happy. But he's frightened. Is it a, is, is it a misunderstanding? Wanting to be happy? Even Anaresti want to be happy, right? They're proprietarians of happiness. They're profiteers. They, they, they're supposed to do individually what makes them happy, right? To do the work that they find satisfying to, to, to be, you know, the, the relationship freedom and living freedom and sexual freedom and all those things that they're meant to have. It just means you're supposed to be able to grasp happiness, right? Nobody will restrict your happiness with laws or rules or things like that, right? Um... But isn't that being proprietarian? Right? Isn't that being a profiteer? F in fearing pain 
and trying to avoid pain. Are you missing the point? Is, is that just a misunderstanding? Instead of fearing it and running from it, one could not embrace it, right? Not seek it, not desire it, because even that would be propertarian, right? If you decide that, no, happiness is not good, it's pain what's, which is good, right? And then you're seeking after pain. Well, you're still being a propertarian, right? You're just seeking something else instead of, you know, there's, there's, that doesn't, that's not any better, right? So the thing that he's trying to see is, okay, what if instead of grasping anything, we get through it, go beyond it? There is something beyond it. What is it? What's beyond pain? Brotherhood? Solidarity? Real solidarity? Remember, when he's here, this is kind of theoretical. He's known pain, right? The father died, the mother left him, right? He's had pain. Um, but he's... This Shevik who says this has not experienced anything like the Shevik that has has that says this, right? Not only his time here on Urus, but the famine, the four years separation from 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 his partner and their child, right? Um, he's known suffering, right? Um, he hadn't known suffering when he said this. He had the sense that there was something beyond it. Um, and notice he's even got a sense there's a place where the self ceases. I don't know how to say it. Yeah, if you get th- if you go through suffering, what do you find? What happens when the self ceases? Brotherhood. Brotherhood. Real brotherhood. Not just the social pressure that he comes to acknowledge in Anaris. Um, hang on, wait losing my place here. Yeah, there, that's where I am. All right. Clicking erroneous slides there. Um, I want to jump ahead. Let's talk, let's talk about that. Let's talk about, this is his recognition in the chapter after the revolution, the NRST chapter. This is the chapter of his reunion with Talk Fair. And, and Sadek. Um, when he's at near the end of that chapter, trying to kind of work out what's bothering him, well, this, he says to Takfer, that we're ashamed to say we've refused a posting, that the social conscience completely dominates the individual conscience instead of striking a balance with it. We don't cooperate, we obey We fear being outcast, being called lazy, dysfunctional, egoizing. We fear our neighbor's opinion more than we respect our own freedom of choice. You don't believe me, Tak, but try. Just try stepping over the line, just in imagination, and see how you feel. You realize, then, what Tyran is, and why he's a wreck, a lost soul. He is a criminal. We have created crime, just as the proprietarians did. We force a man outside the sphere of our approval and then condemn him for it. We've made laws, laws of conventional behavior, 
built walls all around ourselves, and we can't see them because they're part of our thinking. Tyr never did that. I knew him since we were ten years old. He never did it. He never could build walls. He was a natural rebel. He was a natural Odonian, a real one. He was a free man, and the rest of us, his brothers, drove him insane in punishment for his first free act. Yes, James, I too was thinking of the inner Queen Taia. Yes, that Vea spoke of, right? But now think of the distinction there, James. Um, she, Vea, was speaking in terms of the Urasti dictatorships that had been commemorated in that museum that they were, right? Which appalled Shevik. Shevik was just appalled that any memory of that would want to be retained, that there would be this kind of implicit celebration of that horrible past, right? Um, he was disgusted by the whole thing. She, Vea, then comes at him with this inner Queen Taia thing, right? Um, you have a Queen Taia, you have it, you carry around your own dictator, right? You claim that you're free, that you can do anything you want, but you've got this moral drive, this is wrong. You can't do that. You can't act that way. Right? And, okay, you say you don't impose them on others, but you're all imposing them on yourselves. Right? But what he then comes to recognize in what seems later in the story, but is before chronologically, right, is that... And again, see, this is why I say it just, like, transforms things. When I go back to that conversation with Vea, you know, reading it through a second time, when I come the second time to the conversation with Vea and that story about the, the inner queen Taia, I'm remembering this later chapter, right? Which is three chapters down the road from that one, right? But I remember then that three chapters down the road, he's going to basically, earlier on, chronologically, have come to this uh, conclusion that everybody has that, like the society itself has become a queen Taia, right? An arbitrary dictator, um everybody that that everybody is locked away everybody is locking their own doors they're not free right um everyone builds walls around we build walls around ourselves we've made laws laws of conventional behavior built walls all around ourselves um yeah, and James, you're, it's not individual now, it's communal. Yes. Um, but now it's more like... It's not that they each have a Queen Taia in their own heads. What it's really like, and Bea can't really be blamed for not knowing the correct metaphor, right? What it's really like is each person is their own little port of Inaris with a wall around them, right? Um, the society walls in everybody. And everybody is in this kind of quarantine. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I can't agree, Noam. Noam is saying the right way to read this book is all the even chapters and then all the odd chapters. That's the way to read it all in... That's that's Sobel's way to read the book, Noam. Right? That's the sequency way to read the book. If you want to just read it all in chronological order, that is exactly what you do. But then you lose half the effect, right? Um, the way that, to me, it's just... 
the most stunning element of this book. Um, how these things all feed on each other and everything. It's amazing. Um, Nancy says, I feel it could be worthwhile to read it several times and shuffle the chapters each time. Maybe. But see, I don't even know. Like that, It's not even random, though, right? Because I love the parallel of the story as it comes together. It's just hard to remember. You know, it's, it's hard to talk about because they keep wanting to say earlier and later, right? As if the whole thing were simply sequency, but it's not just sequency, right? There's simultaneity as well. Um, so this thing, which is the past of the, of, of Shevik's life, but the future of the narrative, right? Simultaneously. Uh, so cool. Anyway. Okay. Sorry. So where were we? Um, Tyrion. Uh, Tyrion is a, is has been made a criminal, right? He's been locked up. Badap thought he was literally locked up, right? Badap suspected the PDC of actually chucking him into the asylum against his will. Um, Shevik still doesn't know the truth of that, but it doesn't really matter. Um, he Tyrion has gone crazy, right? He has gone insane, and he is locked up as surely as if he were in prison. Um, what did Tyrion do with the prison back in chapter two? You remember? What was Tyrion's part in that whole business with the prison? Do you remember? He was the one who told the lie. Yep. Yep. How did he act? He was opposed to it at first. He wasn't enthusiastic about the idea. But then once they were doing it, he was the one who took the lead. And he was the one who adopted the role of the prison guard. Right? Remember, he was the one who began to speak like a like a like a proprietarian, right? To speak like a master to the kid who was in the prison, right? You know, talking about how he doesn't get rights and, and, uh, and, and, you know, he doesn't get, you know, air. You, you don't get air, right? Remember that was, that was Tyrion. He was play acting, right? That's what he does. Remember at the party, he was play acting as the beggar man. Um, the beggar man, of course, is another, it's not come up nearly as often, of course, as walls and prisons. Um, but the beggar man is another little motif in this book, Right. Um, we see a number of references to the beggar man, including the actual beggar man that Shevik meets and who, to whom Shevik gives all the rest of his money, right? Um, several people um, have been oh, every time the prison thing comes up, people talk about the in the comments. People have made comments about the Stanford prison experiment. I resist that. The reason I resist that, I don't think it's the same. Um, Tyrion wasn't like the Stanford prison experiment, exactly. Um, he was, I believe, I agree with Shevik that Tyrion was a pure Odonian. But what he what what he would do, the thing that he did, which was transgressive, the crime that he committed, was to imaginatively invest himself into the proprietarian point of view, to dramatize it, and even to satirize it. Right, um, and we see him doing that three times. We see him doing it in the prison situation. Right, um, we see him. We see him, so he acts like the proprietary and master 
in the prison situation. We see him acting like the beggar man, which, and the beggar man is this ironic character as well, right? On the one hand, he has nothing, right? He has open hands, um, like an Odonian, but he's a proprietarian. He's always begging. He's wanting to receive, right? Give me, give me, um, buy me, bay me, bay me, right? He didn't have the right word, right? Buy me, buy me, he was saying. He was offering himself as, as an object, right? In fact, it isn't, it's, here's an interesting little paper topic, right? Compare and contrast Tyrion acting like a prostitute at the one party and Vea as the quintessential female body, uh, the, the, the quintessential body profiteer at her party. Um, Anyway, anyway, um, uh, okay, some of you are challenging me for challenging the, the Stanford prison experiment thing. I resist it because it's too simplistic. I don't think it does justice to what's happening in the story. I think what's happening in the story is a far more delicate and interesting thing. Um, it is not merely that... Again, Tyrion was pretending and knew that he was pretending. And I don't see that... I don't find the conclusion of the Stanford Prison Experiment very applicable to the situation, really. I just don't think it's going in the same direction exactly. Um, yeah, there are similarities, but honestly, I feel like they're misleading. Um, I, I feel like they lead to red herrings. Um, that's why I'm resistant to it, because I don't feel that it they go... In, in the When I follow... I, I agree there are parallels, but I find that when I follow those parallels, they end me... They, I, they lead me to mare's nests. They... they, they, I, they they take me to a place which I don't think fits in with everything else that we see. That, that's why. Um, again, I'm not saying it's irrelevant. I'm not, I'm not denying parallels. I'm saying that it doesn't seem to me to work. It doesn't seem to me to help. Um, in the end, I find it not to be illuminating. That, that's all. That's all. Um, anyway, okay, okay, okay. Tyrion. Prison guard. Beggar man slash prostitute. Uh, and then his play, right? Where he crosses that ultimate taboo, right? Of imagining an Urasti coming to Anaris. That is obviously the most transgressive thing in his whole play, right? Um, you know, it's interesting because we, from Takver's description of it, because she saw it, right, when it was first put on, um, she, um, from her, she describes it, and then we hear, after her description, of it being condemned as immoral, right? And of course, she spends a lot of time describing the really funny sexual scene, um, 
and so it's 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 fun. I know I, my own immediate kind of reaction hearing it condemned for immorality is like, oh, it's probably like the you know like the sexual immorality. No, it's not. That would be on Urus, maybe on Earth, maybe on Terra, but not on not on Anaris. That's obviously not what the immoral thing was. So, uh, you know, listening to Takvir's description, I can't help but ask myself, well, on what grounds was it being objected to? Was it being condemned as immoral? And I think clearly the, the, the most transgressive thing in it is that imagine that that bringing that 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 idea of bringing anurasti to anaris and imagining that sort of it's immoral i think to bring the people of anaris like the spectators of a play to bring through your play to bring them imaginatively to that place right where they're thinking about the um anurasti in Anaris, you know, that kind of boundary crossing. Um, and of course, we know that's what they are most... Yes, it's the breaking of barriers and walls, Michael. Exactly, exactly. Um, and as a result, they lock him up. Right. Maybe not literally, but figuratively, at least. Shevik talking about his book. No, the fact is, neither of us made up our mind. Neither of us chose. We let Sobble choose for us. Our own internalized Sobble. Convention. Moralism. Fear of social ostracism. Fear of being different. Fear of being free. Well, never again. I learn slowly, but I learn. What are you going to do? asked Takfair, a thrill of agreeable excitement in her voice. Go to Abenai with you and start a, start a syndicate, a printing syndicate. Print the principles, uncut, and whatever else we like. Bedap's sketch of education in science that the PDC wouldn't circulate. And Tyrion's play, I owe him that. He taught me what prisons are and who builds them. Those who build walls are their own prisoners. I'm going to go fulfill my proper function in the social organism. I'm going to go unbuild walls unbuilding walls. That's the revolution, right? That's what it means to be part of a continual evolution, right? To be in the business of unbuilding walls. Um, yeah. <laughs> Karina says, I learn slowly, but I learn. Oh, look, my new life motto. Karina, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of, I felt that way so many times. Um, and good, Karita also points out, not tear down walls, unbuild them. That is a very interesting choice of words. I agree. Unbuild walls. To tear down is, is merely an act of destruction, right? Um, the walls don't need to just be torn down. They need to be unbuilt, right? Um, yeah, Nancy Nancy wonders how the internalized Sabul gets along with the internalized Queen Taia. Um, yeah, exactly. It's... Um, uh, uh, that the, the two of them are clearly first cousins to each other, right? Um, uh, the internalized Sobel and the internalized Queen Taia dressed in a in a, uh, a, a jacket made with the skin of her own 
serfs, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Arthur is uh, remembering uh, Gandalf's words to Saruman. Is there something you would unsay uh, as a sort of a similarly intriguing choice of words uh, to unbuild and to unsay? Uh, yeah, that is an interesting, an interesting uh, parallel uh, there, Arthur. Um, <laughs> James Stevens says, "Mr. Gorbachev, unbuild this wall." Yeah, that would have been cooler. It kind of would have had less rhetorical force, but unbuild this wall would have been uh, a, a a would have been cooler. It would have been better. Um, I'll end with one last one last note. I won't even read this passage in full. This is the description of the Terran embassy, the tower, right? The fortress, the castle, um, where the, where the Terran embassy is located, right? The Terran embassy, which crouched between the Neo highway and the river, sending up only one squat, grudging tower with a square roof and lateral window slits like narrowed eyes. Its walls had withstood weapons and weathers for 1,400 years. Aren't you glad I'm not reading it? Dark trees clustered near its landward side. Between them a drawbridge lay across a moat. What are you remembering? What should we be recalling? The Terran Embassy is like... Anybody? Got it, Veronica. Absolutely. The tower where Odo was imprisoned. The description of the tower. Remember when they're driving back and Chafoyalisk is like, perhaps you'd like to take him on a tour, right? Oh, isn't that the tower, uh, Pate? Isn't that the tower you just said had been torn down that you just lied to him about? Oh, yeah, that's the tower, isn't it? Maybe he wants a tour, right? I love Chafoyalisk just trying to cause trouble, right? Um, but when they see it from the car, it's the description is very similar, right? That was the tower where Odo was held in prison, Right? Odo being quarantined away from the society, shut away by the proprietarians, possessed, right? They owned her. Um, and yet within her prison, she, she wrote her books, right? She was free. Um, uh, she took the step to become free and led the revolution. Here now he is, he, the, 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 the new Odo, right, is now going to a tower very similar, right? And he's shutting himself up, and he's he's seeking asylum, right? Being shut in. And by being shut in to the Terran embassy, being quarantined from all of all of Urus, right? Certainly from the Iyadi government, uh, which wants to catch him and probably kill him, right? Um, I loved the parallel there between the two, those two towers. Uh, just, you know, uh, Arthur, that's your fault. Um, that Tolkien references. I blame Arthur Harrow for that Tolkien reference. Um, but anyway, uh, I just I, I couldn't resist that. Uh, just drawing attention to that parallel there. It's just another testimony just to how gorgeously tight this book is. How everything fits and meshes together. It just makes me swoon. And yes, Yana, the gates of the the gates of the of are standing open. Yeah, the gates stand open. I I do agree. That that's that that's important. Um, the doors are not locked. All right. Very good. Uh, 
two more classes. Next time, I want to look at following these same, these same themes and thinking about revolutions. I want to go back to look at what happens, the conversation he has with the Terran ambassador, and then the conversation that we see in the PDC with Badap and Shevik and Rulak. Okay, uh, so I want to I want to make sure we look at that. We might even get to uh, talking about physics more and his general temporal theory, but no promises. We'll see how we do. All right, thanks everybody. Uh, you get another chance to uh, uh, to finish up the reading if you haven't. So I hope you'll get through the end of the book certainly by next week. Look forward to talking again next week. Thanks everybody. Good night now.